If you've tried using the access to information laws in Canada to get info about your government, you probably know how frustrating it can be. But if you're a First Nations person trying to get information about your band council, well, good luck. In most cases, there's no laws to rely on. It's up to chief and council to decide. But that doesn't mean that transparency isn't important in these communities. A chief um, has no powers without the people, uh, the community, the whole community. So transparency is very, very important. Um, unfortunately, we don't have it. Hi, I'm Alan Riapel, and you're listening to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. And you just heard from Susan Levy-Peters. Susan was the first female chief in her community of Ilsebukduk, New Brunswick, and she's been advocating for greater transparency for over 25 years now. For the past four weeks, I've been the Mi'kmaq Matters intern in residence. This week, I'm taking the reins from Glenn to bring you a special reported piece on access to information in First Nations. I spoke to people all over the country to not only find out whether these systems exist, but also whether they're used and the consequences of not having them. Well, I'm from Ilsebukduk Mi'kmaq First Nation, which is the largest First Nation in New Brunswick. I am the first ever elected woman chief in my community. Um, but I'm a former chief, and I've worked with the government for many years, and I ran in the provincial, both in the provincial and federal elections. That's Susan again. When I asked her how long she'd been involved in politics, she said basically her whole life. She was just two years old when her father, Albert Levy, became chief of Ilsebukduk. Susan was first elected as a band council member when she was 32 years old. Whether Susan was a council member, chief, or just a concerned citizen, she's always had trouble getting information from the federal government. Often, when she tries to, she's redirected to the local band council. What we're told is we have to go to our chief and council, and then you have to get on the agenda to meet with them, and then they'll say yes, and then you'll have to persist. And Today, meeting with our chief and council, I think we'll have better luck trying to meet with the Queen of England to be honest, and, and I'm saying this sarcastically because it's very hard. I haven't uh, tried the Freedom of Information Act because I don't know what Freedom of Information Act would give me anyway. Governments across the country have freedom of information laws. Basically, you submit a request for information, commonly known as an FOI request, and the government has to answer within a period of time, usually 30 days, although that time frame is rarely met. But, like I said earlier, these laws don't always apply to First Nations governments. It's up to individual band councils to decide whether or not they want to provide the information requested. When I asked Susan about what it's like getting information from her local band government in Yosebukduk, she said it's nearly impossible. Even the band council meetings are usually held in private, which makes it really hard to know what's going on. Most of the meetings are closed to the public. They might have one meeting that's open uh, to the public once a month, and that's only uh, to hear the public with their concerns. And that's not to, when they discuss banned stuff or anything, we're, we're excluded out right yeah, now. So, so really the public doesn't really know what's going on? No, not at all. a lot of the government. No, mm-hmm. God, no, no. It's gone so worse. It's really bad. It's really, really bad. I contacted Ilse Bukduk's band office for a comment, but didn't hear back. At the beginning of the show, you heard Susan say that transparency with the Mi'kmaq community is an important part of being chief. So, what went wrong? Well, Susan said it wasn't always like this, 
When her father was chief, she remembers things being different. When my father was chief, uh, I don't think it was like that. It only became like that maybe in around 1994, 95, 96, around that area. And then we started having the party system, and that's when our elected officials started to get paid. Before that, they were not paid. Back then, if if people got together for housing, I remember women wanted housing, and they got together, and um, they came to our house, and they were going to protest, and the RCMPs came and said, well, you know, what do you, what do you want us to do with them, chief? And my dad said, well, you tell them to go to the hall, and I'm going to go there and meet them. You know, obviously there's something wrong if, you know, if they're here, they want to meet me. And I went with him, and he met with the women, and he talked to them, and, you know, and that's that. As Susan mentioned, a lot of things changed in the late 90s and early 2000s in order to push First Nations towards greater independence and self-governance. But Susan feels like her community was left behind in this process. A lot of things changed around that around that time, and it became more... Um, uh, the communities, the First Nations, we didn't have to answer to the federal. We were supposed to answer more to the people. But mm-hmm. after years and generations of answering just to the federal government, all of a sudden it was back to the people. But right now, as, as Mi'kmaqs, we're kind of a little bit confused in a sense, like um, are you transparent to the people or the government or all of it? Or And then at the end of the day, us people don't get uh, don't know what's going on still we hear the federal government announcing billions uh, set aside for housing and and yet we're still homeless or jobs and yet we're still jobless and so what what is being said out there um, is so different than what we experience at home one of these changes happened in 2013 when the first nations transparency act was passed The act made it mandatory for First Nations governments to release their audited financial statements to the public. While this seemed like a step in the right direction in terms of accountability, there were still some problems. Even with that, uh, a lot of people, you know, won't look at it. Like, Mm -hmm. if you don't have a business background or education, you won't be able to read an audit. But like I said, I'm a former chief. I have a business background. So I, I I can, you know, kind of read these audits. But I still have to set a meeting with the finance people and ask questions, and I will know what questions to ask. Now, somebody down the street won't mm-hmm. know all of this. And, and the audit, you know, when you look at it first, oh, you know, you can say it kind of looks good. But then when you say, okay, where did this go, or why is this there, or why is this that, or then, then, then it gets more interesting. The Act applied to all First Nations in Canada, except those who had a comprehensive self-government agreement. This is because transparency and accountability measures were already built into their agreements. Many of the First Nations in British Columbia are operating under these comprehensive self-government agreements, which are better known as modern treaties. But, as one reporter found out in British Columbia, having legislation doesn't always make accessing information easier. You're listening to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about Mi'kmaq people, politics, land, and water. I'm Ellen Riapel, and I'm sitting in for Glenn this week. Wamish Hamilton is an Indigenous reporter who has taken a keen interest in access to information among First Nations. I'm a member of the uh, Hoopachisit First Nation in Port Alberni, BC on Vancouver Island, but I live and make my home in Vancouver, where I work for CBC Vancouver on the Urban Nations Beat. 
when the treaties were signed, there was all kinds of a hoopla and a celebration of treaties being signed, uh, ushering the First Nations into the modern era, making them economically, politically, relatively independent and self-governing and such. And there was lots of cause celebra about that. But what no one paid any attention to was the charter. But the charter uh, where the province and the federal government was concerned was a must. It was a given. It was a, a written in stone that if tribes were going to negotiate a treaty, they had to adopt the charter. Why was adopting the charter so important for access to information? Well, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms contains freedom of the press. So previously, there was some question as to whether freedom of the press existed could be applied to First Nations. There was a question about that. But with the adoption of the charter written into these new, na- these new treaty nations' constitutions, press freedom most definitively applies. So if press freedom applied to First Nations who successfully negotiated a treaty, then that meant FOIs, previously non-applicable to First Nations bans, were now accessible. Remember, FOIs are those requests that you can submit in order to get specific information you're looking for from your government. To find out if this was true, Wamish went to the Nass Valley, which is located north of Terrace in northern British Columbia. There are four First Nations who signed the Nishka Treaty in the Nass Valley, which was the first modern treaty signed in British Columbia. Here's Wamish again. So I actually went to the Nass Valley to their legislature to sit in on business, much as much like a reporter would in any legislature or parliament or city council. And uh, as I was defined, although it applies, access is another matter. And a lot of these places are out of the way. So there's no media outlet to cover these things. In the Nass Valley, the closest media outlet was an hour and a half away. And the, the editor of the small community newspaper that's there said he didn't have a body to spare and he didn't have a budget to send someone to cover it. So um, it applies. There's just no one to apply it. So, while legally the press can attend legislature meetings, file FOIs, and demand information from the Nishka government, no one was actually there to do it. I asked Wamish what this means for First Nations who aren't operating under modern treaties. They're not uh, compelled to, to divulge any information. And that's, uh, you can't, they're not compelled. I believe the Department of Indian Affairs isn't compelled to provide you with any information either other uh, Indigenous Services Canada or the Indigenous Relations Department. It's a, it's a black hole right now. It's an information black hole. Wamish says when it comes to accessing information from First Nations governments, unless a nation agrees to disclose the information to you willingly, all you can really do is file a request with the First Nation and hope for the best. In 2016, Walmish wrote a series of stories about access to information in First Nations for Discourse magazine. One of his sources was reporter Paul Barnsley. Paul has been covering Indigenous issues for over 25 years and now works as the executive producer for ABTN Investigates. So if anyone knows about the difficulties in getting information out of banned offices, it's him. I started at the Tekalonica on Six Nations, little weekly paper in late 93. And I learned that in order to get access to any of the archived material that they kept in the basement and was guarded by a rather formidable woman, unfortunately, I've forgotten her name, but she saw it as her job to 
personally keep me away from ever getting into the band's uh, archives. Uh, and what would happen if I really wanted something, I had to go and get a BCR. A BCR stands for a Band Council Resolution. It's the way that First Nations govern under the Indian Act. It needs to be signed off by the majority of council, and then it is sent for approval to the Minister of Indigenous Affairs before it can become local law. So, Paul had to get a majority of the councillors to vote yes. He could go in and get the documents or information he wanted access to. Here's Paul again. So, never happened. Um, there's no legislation to make it even something that happens today. But I have some sympathy for band councils. They have a ridiculous job. The Indian Act provides zero of the usual supports that a local government would have. They don't have a legal department. They don't have a planning department. Uh, so that's that means that FOI stuff is, is way down their list of priorities. It has to be. Now, there's a whole bunch of issues that are life and death matters directly that come before that. Uh, but sure would make my life easier if I could just file an ATIP and, and get information. An ATIP stands for Access to Information and Privacy, and it's basically the federal version of the Provincial Freedom of Information, or FOI. The two are basically the same thing. It's just that FOI is for provincial and ATIP is for federal. Because accessing information was so difficult, Paul had to find other ways to report in these communities. What I had to learn to do is to cultivate sources, to find somebody who knew somebody who maybe knew somebody who could get me that thing I was trying to get in the first place. In the absence of access to information systems, building trust has become essential for journalists working in First Nations communities. The people that were gonna get the, the leads, the, the information uh, slipped under their door or whatever, um, were the people that were there all the time that they knew and they, they, they'd made a decision on, do I trust you or don't I, you know? And in a perfect world, uh, that's how journalism should be done, I think. It should be all about earning people's trust. Paul believes that correcting the transparency and access to information issues at a federal level has to come before we talk about implementing these systems in First Nations communities. The federal government is the teacher. Uh, don't blame the staff at the band office. They learn from the best. And, and I think if we correct what's going on generally in Ottawa or in provincial capitals or even municipal police forces and governments. We could correct that and we could actually make a real commitment to actual democracy. I mean, we're talking about First Nations having a problem with access to information. Mm -hmm. Have you filed an A-tip with the RCMP lately or? Uh, <laughs> with I was going to say, it's kind of a larger issue, isn't it? Like yes, the system it is. in general. I, I got something from the RCMP uh, last week that I, I asked for, and I had a statutory right to uh, within 30 days. I got it three years later. And and there, that's only, I, I filed at the time 13 or 14 separate ATIPs. I've received tiny little bits of disclosure on two of those 14 three years later. Canada doesn't want you to have easy access to information. Sorry, citizens, uh, that's my message to you. Paul believes governments that are still evolving towards being truly democratic have to eventually get to transparency. So perhaps we still have some work to do here in Canada. 
With that in mind, looking back to the hereditary forms of government that existed in First Nations communities across Canada, Paul notes qualities of what he believes to be true democracy. It was very much a bottom-up form of government. The, the, the people directed their leaders on what they wanted. It was a true democracy. Uh, I, I've heard talk over the years that the Western concept of governance, which originated during the time of, of monarchs, was very much top-down, right? The people at the bottom really don't matter. And I would argue that that may very well still be the case in Canada. But in the traditional communities, the, the people at the grassroots were considered the source of the power. It goes back to what Susan said at the beginning of the show. A chief has no powers without the people. But as Susan pointed out, a lot has changed. And a lot of these changes are made by the federal government without consultation with First Nations. And the effects are felt within the entire community. And the systems were always being implemented and changed without proper consultation. So we're losing all of our old ways and it's, it's, uh, it's sad. And that's not who we are at Mi'kmaq. That's it for the show this week. A special thanks to Allison Baker, the producer of Mi'kmaq Matters, and Glenn Wheeler for their support in the production of this episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for the latest Mi'kmaq news and views. I'm Ellen Riapel. Thanks for listening.